Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Continue our studies in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at verses 33 through 39 this morning. And I'll just read those verses for us. So 33 through 39, we'll begin reading at verse 33. Mark 15, verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are thankful that you are the son of God and the son of man. Thank you that you are very God, a very God of the same substance as the father, as it pertains to divinity, but as the same substance as us, as it pertains to your human nature. Thank you for this mystery of that hypostatic union. There is one person and two natures, but we're thankful, O God, that we see Christ coming down is what we needed for our salvation. Thank you for what he did. Thank you that he took on human flesh. Thank you, O God, that he died on the cross in this way. And thank you because he did this. The wrath we deserve was poured out upon him, and he was our substitute, and in him we have life. And so we pray, O God, may we not fear death, for we know that just as our Lord triumphed over death, We know that death has no victory and death has no sting for your people. And we're thankful that you are with us. You work and operate in this world according to your decrees, according to who you are. And we're thankful, O God, that we see your work on the cross to bring sinners new life, to bring salvation for undeserving people. And thank you, O God, we see even in this confession, great salvation. Truly, this man is the son of God. So we pray today would be the day of salvation for those that do not know you. And we pray, O God, for your people, that we would have a better understanding of what Christ did. We confess we do not always uh, appreciate the significance of what is done here. But may we see the fact that we will not be judged on that judgment day because of what Christ has done. So help us and encourage us. Give us strength. We pray by your spirit and all things. We pray that you be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's no surprise to any of you that my favorite preacher is Dale Ralph Davis, and he's got an excellent sermon on Mark 15 that after I butchered the text today, you should go listen to what he has to say on Mark 15, verses 21 through 39. But one thing he asked in that sermon, he asks, where is God at the cross? He starts off with that question. I think it's a very relevant question that many people have when it comes to the suffering that Jesus endures. And it's a question that a lot of unbelievers have when they consider the evil and wickedness that is in this world. They struggle with sin. They struggle with the sadness and sorrow that occurs in this world because they have no theology of sin. But they also cannot fathom a father sending his son to die. 
They think it's cosmic child abuse that the father would send Jesus to die in this way. Well, let's remember the persons of the father and the son are unlike any human relationship. Jesus is not just a man, but he is the God man, fully God and fully man in the one person. And the reality is God is present at the cross. God is present even here in this place. God is present in all things. He is present in suffering and he's even present in judgment as the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus in the stead of sinners. It is a triune work of salvation and it is the only, only the son in his human nature who dies. So there's great mystery. There's great things that perplex us as we consider God in Trinity and as we consider the cross and what that means. But we must recognize the significance of the fact that God is there at the cross. And remember, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? He wants us to see who he is, not just as Messiah, but also who he is in his person. We must recognize the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it is a great mystery for us. And one thing Mark has been highlighting throughout the past several verses, past section, really all of Mark 15, is how Jesus is king. How he finally comes to the place of death as king. We saw a king who is silent, a king who takes the place of a killer, a king who suffers. But now today we're going to see a king who is God and a king who conquers in an unexpected way on this cursed tree. Christ dying, Christ's judgment that he receives is the way in which he brings salvation. And the problem is very clear in this text, death and judgment, and the two go hand in hand. Judgment is when we want all things to be made right. Judgment is when things shall be made, uh, be restored to their proper place. But the reality is things made right requires the right punishment of wrong, doesn't it? Sin must be rightly punished. Sin must be eternally punished. And either it's going to be punished in the sinner forever, or it's punished in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And one of the, uh, the penalty for such wrongdoing is death, physical death and spiritual death. The first death and the second death. Death is not natural, even though it happen, will happen to everyone. It's a result of sin coming into this world. And so the mystery of the cross really is the fact that God judges Jesus in death instead of sinners. Jesus dies in the place of sinners. Jesus pays the penalty, both of the first death and that second death as well. That's what Mark wants us to see. That's what all the Gospels want us to see as Jesus dies upon that cross. How God saves his people by Jesus being judged in their place. Penal substitutionary atonement penalty paid in the stead of somebody else who deserves that very penalty and so we'll look at this idea of how jesus saves in death under two headings this morning first of all we'll see a cry of judgment verses 33 through 36 and then secondly we'll see a cry of death verses 37 through 39 so a cry of judgment verses 33 through 36 And secondly, a cry of death, verses 37 through 39. 
So let's first look at a cry of judgment, verses 33 through 36. And notice in verses 33 and 34, we see the judgment of God. And we see how dark the day of judgment truly is in verse 33. Now, notice he says in verse 33, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark seems to be emphasizing the times in which various events occur on the day of Jesus's death. We see in the morning, which was 6 a.m., is when he is before the council, when he's before Pilate, and he's uh, having that verdict rendered unto him, Barabbas instead of Jesus. Then we come to the sixth or the, the, the third hour, which was 9 a.m. And then we come to the sixth hour, which, uh, which is 12 a.m. Or sorry, 12 p.m. all the way to the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. So from 12 to 3, three hours, there is darkness over the land. And this darkness is not some sort of eclipse that is occurring at this time. It's a supernatural phenomenon to signify something. It is a great darkness that signifies judgment. And this image of darkness occurs in the Old Testament uh, as a sign of judgment in many ways. It is a cosmic, world-altering reality of what is taking place. It is a supernatural sign of God of what is happening on the cross. And it's used in the Old Testament in the Passover. The ninth plague is darkness that happened at noonday. Darkness that occurred, it was so dark, but on Israel, there was light. But there was great darkness upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 10, verse 22. And the illusion is very clear. He's alluding specifically back to that time. God is judging Egypt. God was judging that nation. God was delivering his people and bringing them up out of the land of Egypt based on the work that he did there. I know our modern delicate sensitivity, our modern delicate sensitive nature doesn't like judgment, but judgment is important. It's an important theological theme. It's an important theme when we consider what God shall do when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But it's also used of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 29. When he talks about the curses that shall come upon Israel when they fail to keep the commandments that God has given to them, Darkness shall be upon them. Great darkness shall occur. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Again, speaking about darkness that shall come. So judgment is in view here with the language of darkness. And we've already seen darkness. The sun being darkened and the moon will not give its lights. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. And I argued in Mark 13, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about the end of old covenant Israel as a special people. And what Christ is doing when he goes to that cross is he's doing away with the old to make way for the new. He's doing away with the old covenant because it is obsolete and bringing in the new with his own body, with his own suffering, with what uh, bringing the uh, building the temple in his own body. But it is a sign of gloom, a sign of darkness, a sign of judgment upon Israel, upon Egypt. And here, it's a sign of judgment upon our Lord. The Lord Jesus has judgment and wrath poured out upon him. And notice we see how agonizing judgment is. Verse 34. So we have the sign. We have the phenomenon. We have this 
this darkness that's happening at noonday and lasts for three hours, then we see the cry of dereliction in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, so 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The language of Psalm 22 with the language of darkness in verse 33 helps us see that what is taking place here is judgment, but it's judgment upon Jesus. It's it's not just the fact that Jesus dies a physical death, but we see it is the wrath of God poured out upon him. The wrath of God that shall be upon sinners forever, righteously upon sinners forever, because God is righteous, poured out upon Jesus instead. And Mark does it with very little fanfare. Mark does it with very little explanation. It's just darkness and quoting Psalm 22. But there is a lot going on here. It is cosmic judgment, not just physical suffering. Because remember, when Adam died, he brought death into this world. And so we need a second Adam or the last Adam to come and do what the first Adam could not do, live a perfect life, die as a perfect sacrifice, that we might have life in that second Adam. God's righteous judgment requires perfect justice. And it's either fulfilled in your own sin or it's fulfilled in someone else. Our sins being transferred or imputed to somebody else. Our sins being taken upon in our stead. One who acts as a surety, one who acts as a mediator, like Jesus is doing upon this cross. Either sins forever or sins in him once for all time. And we see his dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is from Psalm 22.1. And we will look at Psalm 22 in more detail this evening. But a lot of people like to look at verse 1 and say he's absent. He's not there. God is not perhaps at the cross. Well, if you look at Psalm 22, it is a sensible absence for the righteous sufferer. That doesn't mean God is not there. And even that righteous sufferer, he recalls all that God has done. It's David in Psalm 22. He's definitely pointing ahead to a greater David. He, he, He reminds himself of the praises of God. He reminds himself of the one who's enthroned among the praise of Israel. Then he goes back again and talks about the scorn he receives from men, which we saw in verse 23 and verse, uh, 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 verse 29 as well. Both verse 23 of Mark 15 and verse 29 of Mark 15 allude back to Psalm 22. All that this righteous sufferer endures, all that he goes through, uh, all the suffering that he, uh, isn't uh, given unto him. But, so there is this sense of forsakenness. There is this sense and this unfavorable uh, 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 wrath being poured out upon him. But God is still present even there. God is still present even as he pours out his wrath upon the son instead of man. That's important to understand. God's wrath is everywhere. God's wrath, it depends, though, on our status before him. And in hell, it's not an absence of the presence of God, but the presence of the wrath of God forever. 
That is a terrifying thing. I'd rather have the absence of God than the presence of the wrath of God. That is a terrifying thing to ponder and consider. It's the unfavorable presence of God there forever. Isaiah 59, verse 2, uses language in connection with sin and speaks about that separation. That's what Adam does. He separates us from that presence of God. The status changed. We're under the wrath of God instead of in favor with God because of what Adam did. That's why I need the second Adam to restore and uh, have us allow, give us salvation, redemption, to have communion with the God of heaven and earth. But Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. That's what the law teaches. As we read those Ten Commandments, it weighs us down. That's why we preach the law, but we don't stop preaching the law. We preach the gospel of good news that Jesus has kept the law perfectly and forgiven sins and what he has done. But nonetheless, if you're not in Christ today, you are in your trespasses and sins. He is present before you now, and your status is under his wrath and under his judgment. And the reality is, if you die in that judgment, you shall have that punished forever, world without end. But there's someone who bore the wrath upon himself. And if you believe upon him, you shall have life everlasting. If you believe upon this Christ, you shall find mercy and forgiveness from your sins. You shall find kindness and goodness with a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who will by no means clear the guilty though, but he keeps mercy for many. If you believe upon him, there is mercy there. But in any case, we see the wrath of God, even in the language of our Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's interesting too is Mark's, uh, uh, the, the words of Christ are sparing in Mark's gospel. The last time he spoke, he says, it is as you say in verse two, when he's under Pilate, but he does want us to see that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's interesting as well, as he uses that language, he also, again, in the, with the backdrop of the psalm there and all that is in, involved with it, as he relied, the psalmist relies upon the, the promises of God, we see Christ's resolve, Christ's uh, um, uh, work to fulfill God's promise here. So God is not absent here. God is present in the wrath being poured out, but God is present in the Son who bears that wrath upon himself to bring about that great salvation. So we see that in verse 34 with Psalm 22, but the fulfillment of God's plan continues with verses 35 and 36. Notice how judged people don't see it until it's too late sometimes. Verse 35, some people are so wicked that they just kick people when they're down. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. 
Eloi, Eloi, that kind of sounds like Elijah a little bit, right? So perhaps they were like, maybe he's calling for Elijah. And remember, Elijah was the one that the people of Israel hoped for to bring about and inaugurate the new age, the new heavens and new earth. He was being the start of the last days. Well, I guess they weren't paying attention because there was one who came who proclaimed the Lord, who prepared the way of the Lord, the one who is John, the, or the one who is Elijah, namely John the Baptist. Jesus says this in Mark chapter nine, but still the people there as he's being crucified are still hoping and waiting. Maybe Elijah will come just as he was taken up. The, the, the idea was in Jewish thought that perhaps he would come back and help the suffering. So if Jesus really is the one who he says he is, then Elijah will come and they'll see this great phenomenon. So let's see what happens. Verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. This is extremely cruel. What they're trying to do here is to prolong his death so that they see Elijah come. The language here of vinegar or the reference there, that sour wine, it was used as a sort of stimulant. It was a refreshing drink that was used. It was cheaper than water. So even soldiers used it if they needed a bit of, you know, a bit of a kick. We could all use a bit of vinegar sometimes if we're sleeping and tired. So in any case, that's what it was used for. So it was used at the cross to maybe prolong the suffering that they're enduring. Isn't that terrible? It's a cruel way to prolong the pain that one would go through. So they just want to see Elijah come. So let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. But this language of sour wine is also a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. In Psalm 69, there are really three major psalms that speak about betrayal and suffering and sorrow. Psalm 109, Psalm 69, and Psalm 22. And there's others, but those are the big three. But in Psalm 69... Another Psalm of David. In Psalm 69, verses 19 through 28, it is an imprecation, imprecatory prayer, calling upon judgment. He says, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Cruelty, wickedness, suffering, well, all that the Savior endures is part and parcel of the promises and the words of what David said in Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 109, all fulfilled in him. So again, we see that this was God's plan all along. Christ dying in this way was not plan B. It was always plan A, founded upon that covenant of redemption between Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of the world. And we will look at covenant of redemption, not tonight, but starting hopefully next week. But it's just such a high and lofty doctrine. I need a little bit more time to read upon it, just as we consider what God does in that. But it was God's plan all along. And this has been Mark's emphasis all along. He's trying to show us the resolve of Christ to fulfill the plan of God. 
when he says, even in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will, we see him as he makes his way, even in his death. It is what God had promised and what God had for him to do. John is very explicit, more explicit than Mark, but it's very clear. Where is God in the cross? He is fulfilling his plan by judging Jesus. It is a triune plan, a triune work being fulfilled in the death of the son in his human nature. God is here. God is present. And God brings salvation, even in how he judges sin, even at the cross. So we see here how he judges sin. And again, there's two ways. In one's own sin, there will be a day of judgment, and that will be a very dark day. And the scarier part about that is that dark day will never end. It shall be forever. The scarier part is the image of dying forever. That's a scary thing. I've never died before, but I can't imagine dying forever. Terrifying thing. Ryle says, may we never forget the practical lesson of the miraculous darkness. It should lead our minds onto that blackness of darkness, which is reserved for all obstinate unbelievers. The darkness endured by our blessed surety on the cross was only for three hours. The chains of darkness shall bind all who reject his atonement and die in sin, and it shall be forevermore. So you either die in your own sin and are judged in your own sin forever, or believe on Jesus Christ, who was the substitute, who was the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who became a curse for his people. Look to him by faith. Confess him as the Son of God. You shall find mercy and forgiveness. And when you go to that judgment day, and this is an assurance for all believers, when we go to the judgment day, dear brethren, you know what happens first? Resurrection. We already go with our resurrected bodies to that judgment day. Already with that conformed body to Christ's body. We go already knowing the verdict based upon justification by faith not guilty. That's why we do not need to fear death. We do not need to fear the judgment day because Christ had the judgment poured out upon him in darkness and crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is his cry of judgment. That's then look secondly at the cry of death verses 37 through 39. Notice we see how painful death is. Verse 37, and it's just quick. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Again, this is what the God-man must undertake in order to defeat death. He must die to defeat death. This is predicted in Mark 8, 9, and 10. And even Jesus dying on the cross here shows that he is in control. Typically, one would last a long time on that cross, suffocating for a long time. Jesus dies as he cries out himself, and he breathes his last. Death is, or the, the, the cross is usually that slow process, but he dies here on his own terms. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John 19, it is finished. Jesus has been in control the whole time. The Father, the Son, and Spirit have been in control the whole time. God is present in all that is taking place here. 
And this is where we have to bring up some theology. And brethren, you should love theology and love the Trinity and love the hypostatic union. One God, two, uh, two, uh, sorry, one person, two natures. Because a lot of people have questions about what's going on here. Is the Father dying on the cross? Is the Holy Spirit dying on the cross? What is happening at the cross here? How does God die on the cross? A lot of people sometimes go so far as to say that God was moved in his very being by the cross. Brethren, is God ever moved by anything? Is God ever shaken by anything? Is there ever any change in God's being? Please all say no. Please all say no in your head. So then what do we do with what's going on here? How is it the God who does not change and the God who is and the God who is pure act is on the cross? How do we deal with that? Well, that's what the mystery of the cross is. And that's why the one person in two natures is so important for us. You see, it's what we call the inseparable operations. If you see one person, you see them all. Otherwise, there'd be many different beings, but you see one person, you see them all. And there is one will and threefold execution to bring salvation. And that's why the wisdom of the God-man is so important. Because Christ, who is fully God and fully man, no mixture between the natures, yet no separation because of his person. It is according to his human operation, according to his human nature, that he dies upon the cross. Fully God, fully man, like us in every way, yet without sin. And if he still remains to be God, because he still, he did not relinquish anything by taking on a human nature. That's so marvelous, isn't it? That, you know, the, the baby who wails is the one who is moving the world, the one who is working. That is a mystery for us because we don't comprehend it and we're not supposed to. A lot of people want to think God is like us, but just greater than us. No, he is wholly other and different than us. Sorry, this is theological. You ought to all love it and just appreciate what's going on. But in any case, one writer says, it is the son alone who dies in his human nature, but it is the whole Trinity who passes him from death to life. You see, we're not pitting the father against the son here, are we? Because it's one will in threefold execution, yet there's two wills in the son and the will of the human, the will of the human nature and the will of the divine nature uh, certainly are separate and different, but they're united in the one person. But nonetheless, it's not the father against the son. The father plans, the son willingly goes. So it's not this cosmic child abuse, is it? It was the resolve of the three persons of the Trinity and that second person would come down and take on human flesh to die for sinners. Great mystery. And the reason I speak this way is so that you all go, what a wonderful God. That you ponder and stop and consider how God is wholly other than you and I. And stop and consider what Christ has done. God is not moved by the cross. He is just, righteous, and is love. It is our status that changes before him. And it is how God restores all things and make things new. The son in his human nature, but it is the Trinity who moves him from death to life. God is present at the cross. And what's so interesting? 
I feel so sacrilegious saying what I'm about to say, but the death is a bit of a whimper, isn't it? He just dies. I know verses 38 and 39 will explain the significance, but it just, that's it. And it might seem like a whimper to a human eye. He's gone. Now, God will do a miraculous thing with the centurion. But again, sometimes people think they're going to feel God. Sometimes Christians think we feel God. And there are some times that the sensibleness of God's presence is taken away. But does that mean God is taken away from us? Has God not promised, if you're his, that he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you? regardless of how you feel about that very thing. And you know what we ought to do when we don't feel him near? Pray. Cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll unpack that more this evening when we look at Psalm 22. But just because we don't always feel like God is near doesn't mean he is not present. And he is always everywhere present. The question is, your status before him. Are you in Christ? Are you in your sin? Because if you're not in Christ, he is present today and he is present with you always, but you are under his wrath. But if you're in Christ, you're forgiven in him and have communion with him because of what Jesus did. Where is God, brother? Saving sinners in Christ. And then notice the significance further of what he does for us. Verse 38, we see how we have communion with him. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Matthew goes on to unpack and give more phenomena that happened at that time. But verse 38, Mark, just just that. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How the temple is destroyed by Christ and his finished work. And remember, again, I said, Mark 13, I believe is about the destruction of the temple. And I do think Mark 14 and Mark 15, verse 29, explain that for us. You who said you would destroy the temple in three days and build one made without hands. Through the lips of false witnesses and revilers, we get the theology of what is happening here. We get the theology of what is going on in verse 38. We get the theology of what is happening in Mark 13. The old is done away with and the new has come in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of people are are question what the veil means here. Is it the one that is from the outer court to the holy place? Or is it from the holy place to the holiest of holies? The old boys say it's between the holiest holy place and the holiest place. I think Hebrews unpacks that for us. I think I do think it is the holiest place. Hebrews unpacks the significance of Christ and his finished work. You know what that significant is, uh, significance is? Communion with God. The judgment of God in Christ leads to you and I who are in Christ to have communion with him. The unfavorable presence of God poured out upon Jesus makes it possible that sinners have a favorable presence with him by the Spirit. That's what the temple signifies, being rend into, or the veil being rend into here. God dwells no longer with a physical temple, but with Christ. 
That's the theological meaning of what Christ procures. Again, Mark 13, 14, 58, 15, 29. Ryle says, may we never forget the practical lesson of the rent veil. To attempt to revive the Jewish ceremonials in the church of Christ by returning to altars, sacrifices, and a priesthood is nothing better than closing up again the rent veil and lighting a candle at noonday. Has not Jesus said, it is finished? Why go back to the old covenant sacrifices? It is finished in him. We have the greater temple in him. Why go back? Just that verse gives us a lot of encouraging theology. So where is God, brethren? He is present in making his favorable presence possible for sinful people. Then also notice what he does in verse 39. The significance is not just for Israel. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Gentile foreshadow and inclusion here. Not just for Israel, but for Gentiles, for Greeks, those not Jewish as well. And a lot of people like to explain this away. He's just saying he's the son of, or a son of God. Not actually confessing him to be God. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. It is a supernatural confession that we see here. Only God can bring this about. Want to know why? What did, this, what did the Greeks typically call Jesus? King of the Jews. What does he call him here? Son of God. And brethren, this hasn't been on the lips of really anybody except demons in Mark's gospel. The last time we really saw it, not on the lips of a demon, was on the lips of the Pharisees or the, or the chief priests, but they were doing it to try and get him. Are you the son of the blessed? They didn't want to say God, so they're trying to, they don't confess who he is there. But it's used in Mark chapter 1. And this kind of brings us full circle. Mark 14 gives us that conclusion or that, that Christological confession. Jesus says, I am. But here we see someone confessing, saying something the chief priests never say. He's not just the son of man, but he's the son of God as well. Mark 1, 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Coming full circle. Who is Jesus? The son of God. Going back even to Mark 1.11, when he says then, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is where we see the three persons in operation, do we not? The father speaking, the spirit descending, and Christ coming up in baptism according to his person. No, according to his human nature. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased pleased and this is alluding back to psalm 2 you are my son today i have begotten you certainly it is again bringing together the promise of the king david's greater son but also highlighting that jesus truly is god and it's the way in which he brings salvation he truly is king and here is one who is kissing the son lest he be angry here's the one who's paying homage to the son 
based on who he is. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, only God can bring about this confession. Again, where is God? A lot of people like to say perhaps he saw the veil being rent. A little far away for that. And that's not what the text says. It says, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this, he saw a beaten king. Beaten king. He saw one on the cross. He saw one bloodied and bruised. He saw one crucified. And yet, what does he say? Truly, this man was son of God. So where is God, dear brethren, at the cross? He is present in saving this centurion. This centurion shows that the ends of the earth shall hear and turn to the Lord in fear. That's what Psalm 22 highlights. And we will see that tonight. And we're going to sing that hymn tonight as well. Hymn 295. But we see this one who was an unlikely witness confessing who Jesus is. After the centurions mock him and bow before him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, strike him and crucify him. Here is this centurion confessing. Truly, this man is the son of God. And that's the confession that believers must confess. Truly, this man is the son of God. Who do you say that he is? In Matthew's gospel, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed. You're the Christ, the son of God. Christ brings salvation from physical death. We still die, but we don't need to fear it. But also spiritual death because of what he does here. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall have mercy and forgiveness you shall have grace and you shall know the true and living God. Otherwise, you shall die in your trespasses and sins. And if you're an unbeliever or a believer, we don't need to fear death, do we? I'm not looking forward to how I'm going to die, but we don't need to fear the actual dying part of it. One God writer says again, because the reason is because Christ goes through death triumphantly. He dies on his terms. He shall be buried on his terms and shall rise again according to his terms to bring salvation that we might have resurrection from the dead as well. So brethren, where is God? Where is God at the cross? It is, he is fulfilling the triune plan of salvation in the work of the son in his human nature that judgment might be poured out upon him instead of sinners, that we might have communion with him, a favorable communion with him, and that sinners, unsuspecting, unexpected sinners, might find mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation is fulfilled in the cross of Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the hypostatic union and the mystery of the crosswork of our Lord. Thank you, O God, that the judgment that we deserve was poured out upon him at Calvary. Thank you, O God, that you 
took that unfavorable presence and have given us a favorable presence because of Christ, our temple. And thank you, oh God, that he was the one who was cut off that we might be have communion with you. And we're also thankful, oh God, that you're the one who brings about great salvation to unsuspecting sinners, to unexpected sinners, and shows forth that you're the God who is mighty to save and change. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the blessed. We believe that he is the son of God. We believe that he is fully God and fully man. We believe that he came down to bring salvation whose kingdom shall have no end. Thank you for this one who is our Lord. May we, your people, may we, your saints, marvel at the goodness of you, marvel at your greatness, marvel at your immeasurable uh, being, that you are God and we are man, but also marvel at the wisdom of the union of the natures in the one person. May we praise you and honor you as our God. May we praise and honor our Christ as Lord. And may we do so by your spirit, for we need it, for we are weak and feeble. We also pray, O oh God, that you'd use this day to save sinners, to work in them, to weigh them down in their sin, to, uh, to have them consider what judgment shall be. And may they look to Christ and find mercy and forgiveness in him. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. We pray that you be glorified now in the name of Christ. Amen.